Welcome to the Lakeside Baptist Church Podcast. We pray you are blessed as you hear the Word of God today. For more information regarding Lakeside Baptist Church, please visit lakeside.asn.au. I read a story uh, not that long ago, quite recently, about two little girls called Evia and Maria, and they are Arrestoviks, which um, they, they live in Haiti. This story took place before the more recent uh, disasters in Haiti. I don't know what life might be like for them now. But two little girls, Evia and Maria, who are Arrestoviks, which just means domestic slaves, primary school age kids. The aid group that had been doing a lot of work in Haiti, members from the aid group had gone to to visit some of the kids that they were helping or uh, trying to help in some way. And they'd had this sort of little brief to ask the children that they visited what they wanted to be when they grown up. Uh, when they were grown up. A question grown-ups love to ask kids, don't they? I don't know what the history of that is. We've seen more than one kid roll their eyes when an adult asks them that question. Anyway, that was their brief. They were asking the children that they visited, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the kids, even in some difficult circumstances, gave all sorts of answers and a, a lot of the things that you would expect to hear from kids, primary school age kids. But when uh, the guy telling the story got to Evia and Maria, he said they could not answer. So he thought perhaps they didn't understand the question. You know, sometimes you need to reframe. School teachers know that. Ask it a different way. But no matter how he asked the question, Evia and Maria could not answer it. It seemed that they had no dreams, is what he wrote. And on closer inspection of their lives, which he got to do over those next few days, It kind of made some sense to him. Really, their only horizon was a very close one of daily difficulty and struggle, danger. Perhaps their night times were filled with those same sorts of images and feelings as well. That those things, those negative, difficult, hard things, they consumed them every waking moment of that day. And the guy telling this story came to the conclusion that these girls literally did not know how to dream. They didn't know how to look to some horizon that might be inspiring beyond what they were dealing with. One of my favourite theologians is Bishop Tom Wright. And he says something that I think is very wise. He says that what we do with and what we do to our children is an accurate indication of what we think about ourselves, the world, God and others. You're probably familiar, I imagine, in a congregation like this with a story that's recorded in Matthew 18. I'm not going to read a whole pile of it to you because we're going to look at another story later, but I do want to read you just a couple of verses. Verse 5, let's start there, Matthew 18. Jesus is speaking and he says, And anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf, he's pulled a child in front of him, is welcoming me. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin... It would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Okay, it's not messing around there. And then a few verses later in in, uh, chapter 10. Beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly Father. 
Now, the context of that story, uh, as I say, you're probably familiar with, is that the disciples were debating, arguing, you know, big noting themselves about who would be most important in God's kingdom. And Jesus actually uh, pulled a child, and pulled a child to sit in front of him. And he said to his disciples in that action of pulling that child or asking that child to come and stand with him, he's effectively saying to his disciples that this, if you can imagine a child there, this culturally, socially, economically weak, vulnerable and insignificant person is who matters in the kingdom of God. A direct signpost to what matters and to who matters in the kingdom of God in that child. So who matters? The vulnerable matter. And what matters? Well, that we, especially those of us with the power, I want to add in here, do not block the way into God's kingdom. This is a serious business for Jesus, it really is. And he uses that very vivid imagery of a massively heavy millstone, I can't even put my arms out wide enough, and a a boat journey way out into the deep ocean to bring home what he wants his disciples to understand. And I think if you're honest about that imagery, it can seem a little unnecessarily violent. (laughs) It does to me at times when I read it. I think, okay, you know, a bit over the top there, millstone, deep ocean, it all seems perhaps a little bit um, extreme. But the thing about it is that it leaves us in no doubt of what Jesus thinks about injustice, which, after all, is actually what this story is about. It leaves us in no doubt. When Jesus called that child to stand with him, he was effectively saying to the disciples, you want to know who matters most? Not anyone who thinks they do. (laughs) Not the obvious people with the power. And as to what matters most, well, in effect, Jesus says, listen to this, it will not go well for you if you do anything to keep any one of these vulnerable people from my kingdom. Justice. It's a hot issue at the moment, isn't it? (laughs) Everywhere you look. It's definitely an on-topic thing. A quick um, scroll through the hashtags on your go-to media source will make that point if you need any convincing at all. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Hashtag Me Too. Hashtag Church Too. Hashtag Survivor. Hashtag Domestic Violence. Hashtag LGBTQ. Hashtag Time's Up. Hashtag Love Myanmar. Hashtag Refugees. Hashtag Afghanistan. So many hashtags representing so much heartache. And whatever you might think, about the issues and the politics behind some of those hashtags, and I'm sure we can have robust debate on that. Whatever you might think about it, you can't get away from the fact that those hashtags represent people from various difficult experiences of life saying in one way or another, it's enough now. We want our communities, we need our communities and our relationships to be more just than they are. And you know, when I look at those hashtags, when I see the stuff on the news, when I talk with my neighbours and friends, it strikes me that, you know, we as the people of God, we ought to have something pretty awesome to say into that space about justice, don't you think? I'm sure you agree with me there. But it's also, I feel at the same time as I'm having those conversations, we ought to have something great to say, and it's actually really hard. (laughs) Because we're in this post-Christendom world, 
And uh, certainly in Australia and the Western world, uh, engagement in church and actual numbers, people on seats, has been declining. I heard just, just this week, actually, that in Australia, the decline has plateaued, <laughs> which is interesting. Nothing that's to talk about today, but something to think about. I wonder what that means. But even so, even if we are at a plateau, I think you'd probably agree with me when I say that, generally speaking, the church, representatives of the church, are no longer welcome at the table or no longer enjoying the trust of the community in ways that we have done in the past and kind of taken for granted that we would be engaged in that place. So, and it's going to get less depressing, I promise, <laughs> what are we, the people of God, what do we have to bring into the conversation about justice? And perhaps even as um, importantly, and, and, and maybe an even more difficult aspect to that, is how can we bring it? How can we bring what we have to the table we're no longer that welcome at? I'm going to attempt to give us some things to think about uh, to answer those two questions today. And I, as I was thinking about this, I thought, well, I imagine if Jesus were here today and, and standing here and, and delivering a message of some sort to you about justice, the first thing he would do is head out to kids' church and see if he could borrow a kid <laughs> and bring that child and stand the child in front of us. And so if you can imagine with me that child, let's keep that little one in mind and look at another story from Jesus' life recorded in John and chapter 8. We've got the... Uh, words for this on the screen, or you might like to follow along in your Bible or device. So John chapter 8. Again, maybe a familiar story to many of you here. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, we read. But early in the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could then use against him. But Jesus, very annoyingly, I'm sure, to them at the time, he just stooped down <laughs> and uh, wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept on, you can imagine it, can't you? Come on, Jesus, what do you think? Here's what the law says. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, okay, all right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Bit of a risk he took there, don't you think? But when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. Maybe we are wise. <laughs> Until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, oh, well, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. You know, in their quest to trap Jesus, those religious leaders appear not to have thought twice about inciting a crowd to inflict a cruel and vicious death on that woman, one party to the adultery. And Jesus' response is so different, isn't it? He says to the woman, 
none of these will condemn you and neither do I. So you are free to go and live differently now. The, the words in most of your translations will be something like, go and sin no more. But there's another way of saying, they didn't condemn you, I won't condemn you. You are free to go and live differently now. And in the context of this woman's story, I can imagine that, that Jesus is thinking, you are free to go and live differently by finding a better way of being in intimate relationships, which is probably what was going on in that woman in the first place. You're free to go and live differently, to find a better way of being in relationship with people. So why does Jesus respond like this? Why does he act like this towards the vulnerable woman? Well, I think for the same reason that he points to a child as a signpost of um, what matters in his kingdom. You see, Jesus' response uh, to that woman, it has to do with uh, three things, really. It has to do with image-bearing, it has to do with righteousness or right relationships, and it has to do with justice. And in fact, the way he responded to that woman, uh, the same way he responded with regards to the child, is, is to do with God's kingdom story and its king, who is, of course, Jesus himself. So we've got to go right back to the beginning. I promise I'm not going to go through blow by blow from Genesis. <laughs> but we've got to go right back to the beginning of the story just to, to get an idea of this. We're told at the beginning of the story that all human beings are created in the image of God. All human beings, even the ones we don't like, all human beings are created in the image of God. And as the story unfolds, uh, very early on in Genesis, we see that image bearing is designed to play out in righteousness, in right relationships. And we're going to talk about that uh, in, in just a moment. So we're image bearers. That's designed to play out in righteousness, in right relationships. And that then means that all human beings in our communities and our relationships are going to be treated justly, are going to be treated with dignity and fair, fairness. So those three things are linked in the opening story of Genesis. Image bearing, righteousness and justice. Now, the Old Testament understanding of righteousness is, at its simplest, and I don't think this is, makes it simplistic, but at its simplest is being in right relationship. Um, another one of my go-to theologians, Scott McKnight, describes this righteousness as oneness. I think that's quite a helpful word. And it's a oneness four ways. It's unity or reconciliation with God. It's communion, fresh communion with self, reconciliation, good relationship with others, and all of the created world. So righteousness happens in four relation relationships. Me with God, me with self, me with you, and me with all of this created world. And of course, as image bearers living in right relationships, it's inevitable that the way we live in relation to each other will reflect justice will reflect just actions and attitudes. And all of that is in the opening scene of God's story. Now again, many of you, if you've been in church for a while, will know what happens next. It's all captured in the story of Adam and Eve. They did something. A, cho a choice was made, in that we read in that story, to do something God had said not to do. And you know what? That meant the image was cracked. The image was cracked. And look what happened. You think you've got image bearing, relationships, justice. The image was cracked. Adam blamed Eve. <laughs> Eve blamed the serpent. God put them out of the garden and suddenly their everyday work became difficult and unmanageable and their relationships were suddenly characterised by violence and distrust. 
And in fact, from this point in the story, the whole story really is shaped by this cracked image bearing and the breakdown in right relationships and, as I say, the inevitable injustice in the way that then as broken image bearers, we started to treat each other. So certainly shaped by that. But of course, the story is also shaped by God's pursuit of his cracked image bearing people. And again, a whisk through the Old Testament. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, Noah and Abraham, Moses, kings, prophets, judges, we see uh, God calling his people. We see him calling his cracked image bearers to live right and just lives. You know, when the Old Testament talks about justice, there's a number of different words it uses and different aspects to justice. But the main emphasis of justice in the Old Testament is about justice as restorative. So the sort of justice that sees people restored to the dignity of being image bearers and therefore restored to righteousness, right relationships, and to being in um, um, just uh, communities with each other. It's the sort of justice that sees where people are being taken advantage of and it helps them, but not just, I want to say to you, in terms of giving someone, an individual or a small group, a hand out of a, of a tricky situation with a little bit of charity. So it's more than food parcels and a bed for the night. It's more than letting one asylum-seeking family um, out of detention so they can be with a sick child. It's more than making 20 or 200 or 2,000 places for refugees from Afghanistan, as important as all those things are. I'm not saying don't do that. <laughs> not saying don't do food parcels and those other things, but it's more than that. There's a number of verses in the Old Testament that references themselves will be on the screen, but these give us an idea about uh, what restorative justice is like. It's opening our mouths for people who can't speak for themselves to see they get justice. It's renouncing and it's deconstructing evil systems, we read in Jeremiah, and it's frustrating the plans of the wicked, the psalmist tells us. You see, restorative justice actively advocates with and behalf of the vulnerable person or the vulnerable group, certainly to ease the circumstance they're in. We need to do that. But more than that, to deal with the structures and the, and the, the actions and the way that the community is set up so that that individual or that group is in that predicament in the first place. It's got to deal with both of those things. It actually um, advocates with and on behalf of people in order to do something to make community a better place. Now, as the Old Testament closes, God's story certainly hasn't finished, and we're going to pick it up again in just a minute. But I want to get back for a moment to the day that Jesus called a child to him. If you know anything of the history of that time, you'll know that children in Jesus' day, they were property and in reality, they were, they were actually only considered half-human until they reached puberty. And there's some disturbing implications to that. They were property, half-human. They were not recognised as image-bearers. All those beautiful kids that walked out there, the ones still in the service, not recognised as image-bearers. They were not people of any relational significance. They were not afforded fairness and dignity because the power lay in the adult world. And in Jesus' day, women too were often viewed as commodities, not image bearers, of little relational significance, not people to be afforded fairness and dignity. And you see, in Jesus' day, 
the way that relationships were structured, you, you often saw justice, and I have to put it in inverted commas, wielded like a weapon by the powerful people over the vulnerable people. And it wasn't just in Jesus' day. I mean, history shows us again and again, doesn't it, that we're more likely to wield justice as a weapon by being dismissive of the needs of a, of a vulnerable person or, or more unfairly judgmental of the other when the power balance is tipped in our favour and against the other. So when, when I have the power or we have the power and they don't, justice can very easily morph into a weapon we use against rather than for the vulnerable. Happened in Jesus' day. It's not just historical, though, is it? It happens today. And you know what? It's not just other people who act like that. It's us. <laughs> it's me. You know, I'm a Caucasian, home-owning, well-educated, well-employed, relationally well-connected, middle-class woman, and I easily sit in my comfy lounge room watching the news on my ridiculously large-screen television. And I can allow a quiet voice in my head as I watch the, you know, certain news items to say, well, it's awful, but if only that person hadn't been out after midnight, if only drugs weren't involved, then maybe that bad thing wouldn't have happened. Or I can notice, as my rational mind does, that, have you noticed Myanmar and Afghanistan, they've dropped off the news. And yet, terrible things, I know from friends of mine who are intimately involved in both those places, terrible things are happening there. And you know, I notice it, but I'm not really distressed about it. It's like I'm not really um, outraged on behalf of the vulnerable people there. And you know why that is? Because there's a subtle script in my head that says again, well, that is awful, but well, it's how people in those faraway countries live. It's kind of what they do to each other. It's, it's, it's what happens, it's how it's always been. I hope you get the point, I'm not proud of that. <laughs> but when I stop and really look at myself and I think, why am I not responding? It's something to do with a script like that that just plays quietly in the back of my head. And that's because imbalance of power somehow predisposes us to a certain perspective that lets us see the other whether they be the person on the seat next to you, your neighbour, someone in Myanmar or Afghanistan, someone on the news, it lets us see the other without reference to their being image bearers. We don't think of them as image bearers. I don't think of them as image bearers. Cracked image bearers, yes, and I can usually point out their cracks quite well, <laughs> but cracked like me. And you know, when that happens, it's so, so easy to think that in some way, the other person doesn't matter. Or I think worse. This makes me cry every time. Worse, it somehow makes us think that the other person deserves what is happening to them. And by implication does not deserve to be treated with the fairness and dignity that is becoming for an Im uh, image bearer. And Jesus' response I think in both the story with the kids and the disciples and the story with this woman reminds us there is a right and just way to live as image bearers. And of course, it's in Jesus' death and resurrection that all of this really uh, comes home in God's story. And we should really remember that, you know, God's story has always been moving towards Jesus, who as God himself is the one who can take our brokenness and restore us to our image bearing design and purpose. 
And you know, for you and I, it's not in praying the right prayer, believing the right doctrine. They're important things, again, not dismissing them, but it's not in doing those things. It's in becoming relationally one with Jesus that our oneness is restored. It's restored with God. There's restored communion with self. There's restored relationship with others and with all of God's beautiful created world. And I want to say to you that I reckon the best presentation of that uh, gospel story and that restoration is actually in Galatians 3.28, where we read, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You can add your own dichotomies in there. (laughs) For we are all one in Christ Jesus. And this is why Jesus responded to the woman as he did. He saw in her an image bearer of God, in that woman dragged, who knows what was going on, but where she'd been dragged from. He saw in her an image bearer of God, just as he saw in that child an image bearer of God. And as the perfect and actual image bearer, he visited on that woman the justice that goes with righteousness. He released her from her brokenness and freed her to live differently. And that is effectively what justice is in God's story. It's forgiveness that restores our image-bearing design and liberates us to live better. (laughs) Liberates us to live in right relationships. Always doing in that context what is good. You know, people uh, who want to mock churchgoers or people who follow Jesus might refer to us in a derogatory way as do-gooders. You know, you've heard something like that. I tell you, Jesus and the leaders in the New Testament, when they wanted to describe what justice looked like from Jesus' time, again and again they used that phrase, doing good. So if we're called do good, as I say, bring it on. We ought to be. If we are doing good, we are acting as reconciled people, living the way that we should live in our societies, doing, doing good. That's how Jesus describes justice, doing good. Okay, how are you going? We're nearly there. I want to say, I guess, a point I want to get to here is that justice is not an optional add-on in God's story. It's not something that you pursue if you get to a certain age and you've got time for it, you know, and you become one of those advocating older women or older men. (laughs) Or maybe you're a young person who's got time and space for that. It's not something you pursue if you've got time for it. And it's not something you pursue if you're wired that way. And it's certainly not, as some would say, a distortion of the real gospel. Those angels Jesus spoke about in Matthew 18 make that very clear back in the story of the, um, the child. In stark contrast to the angels of Jewish tradition, and the, the Jewish tradition said that angels always had to have their wings covering their face when they were unable to look at God. They weren't allowed to look at God in the face. But the, one that Jesus, the ones that Jesus refers to in Matthew 18 are allowed and even welcomed to look God full in the face in their role as advocates and protectors of the little ones that they were um, speaking to him about. And in that context, certainly the little ones were children, but little ones is more than children. Little ones is anyone who might be vulnerable because of a life circumstance or or a stage of life. So it could be the chronically ill, the elderly, people who are infirm, refugees, ethnic minorities, people reeling from natural disasters and terrifying civil wars, and the people behind some of those hashtags that I read out at the beginning. They are the vulnerable ones. So have no doubt. 
Justice is a defining characteristic of God's kingdom. And there are angels, don't forget this, I think of it often, I try and remind myself when I hear those terrible scripts playing in my head, there are angels looking right in the face of God, advocating on the behalf of those that I might be tempted to dismiss or think somehow don't matter. There's angels looking into the face of God on behalf of them. Now, if, like me, you hear something like this or you think about these things and you you say, maybe, yeah, okay, I can get behind that, but what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I've got a life, you know, I've got stuff, I've got to earn a living, I've got a household to run. These are such big things. What am I going to do? Well, I want to say to you, first of all, let's remember that this is God's story. That's a really helpful perspective, I think, to keep. And the power to call and transform cracked image bearers belongs to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We've had, I'm not sure if it was something Anthony said or something we were singing today, maybe as we were praying, just reminding ourselves, we've got a part to play, but the the work of transformation, I think it was the story you told, Anthony, about that young person you were speaking with. It's God's story and the power to call and transform is actually, belongs to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So it's good to remind ourselves of that. (laughs) And then I think we need to prayerfully step into conversation. We do have a job to do. We need to learn to, to lean in and to listen. And I think we need to do it, first of all, right here. We need to do it with the people sitting alongside you. We need to be able to do that in our own churches and then in our communities, our neighborhoods, the places that we work. We need to lean in and listen, but not to the easy people. We need to learn to lean in and listen across differences. So listen to someone about the life experience of someone from a different race or ethnicity, a different generation even. Listen to someone with a different understanding of sexuality. Again, like the politics of the hashtags before, something different is going on here. We're not saying lean in and listen to debate. Lean in and listen to find out what life is like for those people? What's faith like? What's God like? What's the church like for some of these people, if it registers at all? What about people of different education, different economic experience or theological persuasion? You get that even in a church. Lean in and listen and do so without agenda, especially if the power lies with you, especially if the power lies with me. Lean in simply to learn what life is like for someone other than you and see what God will do in you and in the other. I think that is actually a simple, practical step that we can take to show our community that as God's people, we are willing and committed to taking exploitation of the powerless and the vulnerable seriously as a first step. Well, very first step, remembering it's God's story, he's doing the convicting work. Second step, prayerfully lean in and listen. What's life like for you? No agenda. What's life like for you? It was in leaning in and listening that one woman was inspired 50 or so years, might be 60 years ago now, to bequeath her home here in Perth, and it became an investment which right now means there is a First Nations single mum with five kids doing a medical degree, fully supported. And in her own words, I met her not so long ago, 
doing something to change how life usually goes for my family, she said. Doing something for me and my kids, and it's because, she said, I realise the man upstairs is looking out for me and making a way. Fifty, sixty years ago, a woman looked at what was going on for the educational opportunities for First Nations people. She leant in and listened and took an action. I spent last evening writing a funeral service for a young adult whose life ended tragically last weekend. If someone told me the story of that life, you know, so if I wasn't engaged in it, if someone had just told me the story of that life, I tell you, without a doubt, my middle-class, comfortable, Caucasian self would probably have said something like, oh, so sad, such a waste, so inevitable. If I knew any of the details, so inevitable. But that's one example of a, a place I've had the opportunity to lean in and listen for nearly two decades now. And I know that person has thrown heart and soul into trying to make a good life, trying to follow Jesus well. And that the sheer weight of the brokenness and horror of all that life had been for that person actually got too much. And so I will gladly be part of a funeral service that honours a life lived bravely. And I will gladly look forward to a happy day of reunion with that person to come. And I will remind myself again that we, all of us, need to do better. I need to do better each day at seeing in the other person an image bearer of God. Cracked, broken up, but an image bearer of God. And then I need to act in such a way that our communities are, in Jesus' name, just places, better places for people to live with dignity and purpose because they are image bearers of God. Right now, in these last couple of weeks, uh, Karatha Baptist Church, led by Pastor Nick Martin, they are leaning in and listening to their community. Um, they found that they, well, I don't think they accidentally discovered it, but they, they, have, they had a nice little nest egg of savings. And it occurred to them, what are we keeping this money for? So they're leaning in and listening to their community to see how they can use that money for the benefit of the community in Jesus' name. Nick said to me recently, I'm quoting from him, what leaders and others in our community shared at some of these conferences or conversations was extremely valuable and really served to affirm some of our thoughts, but also added layers and redirection. That church was prepared to redirect how they thought they might spend that money, added layers and redirection to the thoughts that we were having when we heard what the community needs. Leading in and listening, said Nick, has been a very helpful process that has sparked lots of exciting conversation as we dream and discern God's future for us. This is how we speak to justice. And in this way, it may well be that our communities will see again that God and his people can be trusted and do have something life-giving to bring to the table. We do. <laughs> we really do. So Lakeside, you are each one image bearers. Each one. And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that as the local church in this community, you are God's masterpiece. 
God's masterpiece. So as I have a feeling you are already doing, can I encourage you to continue to lean in and listen? Start with the image bearers sitting alongside you. Lean in and listen. Lean in and listen here in this place, in this community. And lean in and listen to those living in your street, those at your workplace. We prayed for this morning, some of us. Those wherever you do life. Lean in and listen to the image bearers that you meet every day and see what God will do in that space. Will you join me in prayer? Father God, we have sung this morning and heard something this morning of the enormity of your love and your compassion and your justice. And for many of us here, we, we have known the truth of that deep in our hearts. We've known the truth of that in the practicalities of our relationships and what has happened in our life. Probably most of us here have also known times when that has felt hard to connect with. And yet, we declare again and again, often encouraged by others, that you are always who you say you are. That this story that you graciously invite us into is your story. And that nothing, not the worst thing, the worst day in each of our own lives, not COVID, not atrocities across the world, not the riches that we find in some parts of the world, nothing will keep you from writing the story that you are writing in human history. And Father, we want to be right with you as you invite us to do in that place. We don't want to lag. We don't want to be writing another story off to the side that we end up finding is irrelevant. So I pray for each of us and particularly though for Lakeside as a community that you will guide this church even more so into an understanding of where it is you are asking them to join you by leaning in and listening. And almost in that, if we can picture that together, it's like you're inviting us to hold a door open so that your Holy Spirit will move in to the space that is made and do the convicting work that belongs to you alone. Thank you, Jesus. We love you and we want to love you more.